Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. So, as most of you know, we are doing something a little different on Sunday morning. Usually we just go verse by verse through a book, but I felt like the Lord laid it on my heart to teach the book of Philippians topically, uh, building each message around the main theme, which is joy. So looking for every place in the book where joy is mentioned, uh, isolating that passage, studying it to see what the context is, and then developing those into our main points. So, so far we have looked at joy in fellowship, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Second, joy in proclaiming the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Then we looked at joy of faith, chapter 1, verses 25 and 6. And now we uh, have, are finding ourselves in the fourth main part of the study, a section we've called Joy in Unity. So let's pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 1. Get the context, all right? You can read the whole, well, hopefully you read the whole book at least once a week while we're in it. But uh, verse 27, Paul said, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So, I hope you picked up on these phrases seven times in these verses. Paul, using various expressions, uh, various phrases, I should say, expresses his hope that the Philippian Christians would walk in unity. As we have said before, uh, as we have gone through this section on unity, unity is a very important thing, yeah, because it brings joy when Christians are really, you know, it's good for brethren to dwell together in unity. When there's true unity, true spiritual unity, there's a lot of joy there. We're praying for each other, we're encouraging each other, we're helping each other. Very precious time. But it's also important because it's essential for victory. The devil knows this, that's why he tries to peel us away from each other. He wants to get you isolated so he can really work on you and destroy your walk, your witness, and so on. Um, that's why the Bible tells us not to forsake the fellowship of the saints. We need each other. You know, we're not designed by God to be individual cells that exist outside of the body. Uh, We are placed in the body of Christ just like a cell in a human body. Can't survive outside the body. Neither can a Christian really survive outside the fellowship of the people of God. So one of the greatest passages on Christian unity as we've been looking at it Uh, In the New Testament, it comes out of Ephesians 4. Why don't you turn there? 
And as we have said, in Ephesians 4, uh, starting with verse, well, verses 3 and 13, Paul talks about the basis for our unity with one another, with uh, one another as believers in Christ. In verse 3, he talks about the unity of the Spirit. And then in verse 13, he mentions the unity of the faith. Now, we are currently looking at that first one, the unity of the Spirit. So let's read verses 1 to 3, where Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, Paul speaks of the importance of maintaining our unity as Christians. But then in verses 4 through 6, he goes on to give us seven spiritual realities that make up our unity and bind us together in Christ. So far, we've looked at the first six of these realities that unite all true Christians together. Uh, let's read verses 4 and 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We've looked at all of those, so you can get the studies. You can go online and listen to them if you're inclined to do so. But uh, that then brings us this morning to number 7 on the list, where Paul says in verse 6, And one God and Father. Now let me just stop there. Understand that when Paul says that there is only one God, the Father, he's not denying the Trinity. Let me say this up front. I'm a stickler on theology. I'm not saying all my theology is right, uh, all the basics is, but there might be areas of theology we may differ on. Timing of the rapture or the gifts of the Spirit still around today is the is the uh, millennial kingdom uh, literal or allegorical? These are things we can uh, we can discuss in love, but I want to nail down this morning for a few minutes uh, something very important because you read this and you think, well, wait a minute, there's one God, the Father. Well, what about the Spirit and Jesus? What about the Trinity? Well, in verses 4 to 6, Paul is, talks about all three persons of the Godhead. They're all mentioned, albeit in reverse order from how they're usually mentioned in the New Testament. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, no. Paul lays it out, one Spirit, verse 4, one Lord, the Lord Jesus, verse 5, and then one God and Father, verse 6. And again, guys, the Bible teaches that though these, uh, though there is only one true God, he is revealed or manifested in three separate and distinct persons. Again, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is independent from the other, but never do they act independently of the other. They are always in perfect unity. Now, the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, we see God presenting the truth of the Trinity right up front to start the Bible. We see the triune nature of God. Uh, you know the verse. Let me just read it to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God in that verse, Genesis 1-1, is the plural, is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is in the plural. Elohim is 
plural in the Hebrew. And therefore, when it's mentioned in a, a, a scripture, it should be coupled with a plural verb and a plural pronoun uh, whenever it appears in the sentence to make the sentence grammatically correct, right? However, whenever the word Elohim appears in the Old Testament, and listen, it relates to the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh. Because I say that because in Exodus 32, 1, the word is used of false gods. In Psalm 82, 6, it's used of the judges of Israel. He calls them gods. Why, why would you do that? Because they're sitting in the place of God, passing judgment on people's lives. They are not gods. I think they, judges today, have come to think of themselves as actual gods. But they were representing God. And I, I say that because you have to understand, whenever the word Elohim appears in the Old Testament and it is uh, connected to the God of Israel, uh, the verbs and pronouns are always in the singular. Elohim is, Elohim is plural. But the verbs and pronouns are always in the singular, which makes the sentence grammatically incorrect. So why did the Holy Spirit do that? He was trying to communicate something. He was trying to communicate that our God is, uh, he is one God in some kind of plurality. It's communicating the triunity of God. Now God reinforced the truth of the Trinity in the Shema, which comes out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Hebrew word for one is echad, echad, all right? The Shema, and most of you know this, is the great Jewish statement of faith. It was recited twice daily by every Orthodox Jew, once in, uh, during the morning prayer time and once during the evening prayer time. In this verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, we are told that God is one. However, when we examine the Hebrew word echad, translated here as one, we discover an interesting meaning. The Hebrew word echad comes from a Hebrew root that means to unify or collect together. The word literally means a unified one or a compound unity. It's the same word that was used of when the spies brought back a cluster of grapes. Remember, they were so big, took two guys to carry this cluster of grapes on their shoulders. They wanted to show the fruitfulness of the promised land. The word was echad, that was one cluster made up of many separate grapes it's the same word that god used in genesis 2 verse 24 when he's talking about marriage and how the two are going to become one flesh he uses the hebrew word echad uh, one but in a plurality in contrast to that word echad you have the uh, other hebrew word for one yakid which means one in the sense of a solitary oneness, a single soul. By the way, that word is never used in the Old Testament in reference to God. Never used in reference to God. Our God, uh, the Lord our God, is one Lord, Echad, a united one, a compound unity, a trinity. Now, guys, this connects the Christian faith with Judaism. You say, well, how so? Well, the God of the Old Testament that the Jewish people have worshipped since the days of Abraham is the same God of the New Testament that we Christians worship. Of course, we know that. Out of Judaism came Christianity. 
As someone has, has said, Judaism is the root and Christianity is the fruit. That's why we refer to our faith as Judeo-Christianity. They're connected. Now back to Ephesians 4, verse 6. Let me read the whole verse where Paul talks about one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The fourfold use of all refers not to all people, but to all believers in Jesus Christ. Let's look at these quickly. He first of all talks about one God and Father of all. God is not a father to all mankind. The Bible never teaches the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. He is the creator of all mankind, but doesn't become our father until we are born into the family of God by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, at which time we are adopted into the family, and now we can legitimately call God our Father. So one God and Father of all, of all believers. Secondly, God is above all. Now, this means that God is transcendent. Uh, he is separate from his creation. He is above his creation. He is not dependent upon his creation. J. Vernon McGee put it well. He said, and I quote, He doesn't depend upon oxygen to breathe. He doesn't have to pick food from the trees he created to survive. He is transcendent. So God is completely independent of his creation. He's completely self-sufficient. He is above all that he has created. Number three, God is through all. In saying this, Paul wants us to know that even though God is separate from his creation, he, may, he remains intimately connected to his creation. Or, as the theologians put it, he is not only transcendent, he is also imminent. That means that he is in this universe in which you and I live, and is intimately involved in it. In other words, he is not a distant deity who created all things and then you know, withdrew to a neutral corner somewhere outside his creation where he's observing all, but remains detached and uninvolved in the affairs of mankind. That's deism. We are not deists. We don't believe in the God of the deist. Deists believe that God created all things and then withdrew and is completely uninvolved. He doesn't get messed around with us, doesn't uh, inject himself into the affairs of mankind. He is completely separate. But that's not our God. He is very much active in his creation. He is moving it along according to his divine plan and purpose. It's a little bit uh, confusing, but I think, I, I think all of you understand what's going on. Uh, God is transcendent, so he is you know, above his creation, not subject to it, doesn't depend on it. And yet he has injected himself into the creation. Now the theologians, as they try, and they're great wordsmiths, they will work for weeks trying to formulate just the perfect way to say something so that it communicates a truth doctrinally as clearly as they can. I applaud that. But they will tell you the best understanding of these two terms transcendence and eminence is the incarnation where God separate from his creation came down entered into the mainstream of human history 
God became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He taught us. He revealed God's nature to us and then died on the cross so that we could be saved. He is the Emmanuel, our Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. I mean, it's amazing to think about our God, that he loves us so much that he set his glory aside, Philippians 2, and became lowly. He became lowly. He condescended so he could meet us where we were. And ultimately, someday raises up to where, to where he will live forever with us alongside him in heaven. Well, number four, God is in y'all. I don't know if Paul is from southern Israel or what. But uh, at first glance, it sounds like Paul is teaching pantheism, which believes that God is a force that flows through everything, through all. But here Paul doesn't say that God is in all. He says that God is in you all. Again, speaking of believers, meaning that he is in his church, that he lives inside of all believers in Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Guys, this means that uh, the church, the body of Christ, is the main instrument that God uses to do his will and his work on the earth. When Jesus ascended back to the Father, his ministry didn't end. He turned it over to his church to continue. I mean, Luke says, uh, Luke says that as he's writing to Theophilus. Uh, starting the book of Acts, he says, uh, The former treatise, the gospel I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of all the things Jesus began both to do and teach, he now continues through his church. And then it gets off into this whole book, the book of Acts, which talks about how God is continuing. And the book of Acts, by the way, is an open-ended book. It's got 28 chapters in the Bible, but it continues throughout the centuries. We're a part of it right now. Because we are the church, which began on Pentecost and will officially close the church age at the rapture. That hasn't happened yet. So we're still, you know, a part of that, what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through the church, Jesus being the head who is in heaven, and the Holy Spirit uh, conducting uh, the church in ways that will allow God to use us for his uh, program here in the earth. But in other words, he is in you all as believers in Christ. Now, while his presence fills all true believers in Jesus, all people, believers and unbelievers, live in him. What does that mean? Well, every human being lives in him in the sense that he is omnipresent, which means his presence fills the universe, and there is no place where a person can be separated from him. You can't run away from God. You can run, but you can't hide. Like Jonah. Go ahead if you feel like it. You know, you can run, but he knows where you are, and so on. Uh, turn quickly to Psalm 139. David mentions this. You all know it, Psalm 139, starting with verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, <laughs> you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is nowhere you can go to escape God's presence. Now, it's not just what you said when David was a believer. Yeah, but this truth doesn't just apply to believers. It applies to all people. Turn to Acts 17, because Paul expressed this thought to the Athenians 
on Mars Hill. Acts 17, you can read the whole passage on your own, but I'm just going to read starting with verse 24. Now he's preaching to these philosophers. And he says in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Well, no, because he's omnipresent. His presence fills the whole universe. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Jump down to verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, when you first read that, you might have thought he was talking to pagans. How does that work? The pagan is in the Lord? Well, yeah, in the sense that God's presence fills his creation. He is everywhere. And all people are, in a sense, you know, in uh, him. And think of it this way. We survive because, because we are in him. We, we live in a body. Our spirit lives in a body that he gave us. Uh, we drink water that he made. We eat food that he created. Everything that we need for life is in him. Whenever, I, and I've heard people over the years say, who are mad at God say, I don't need God. Uh, I said to one of them, well, do you need air? Because if you need air to survive, you need God because God gives you the air. You live in an atmosphere of God, and you need him to survive physically, uh, but especially spiritually. Now, we have been talking about Christian unity for the last few weeks and how important it is to the overall health and effectiveness of Jesus' church on earth in fulfilling the great commission. Of course, the devil understands this only too well, which is why he tries so hard to sow division into the local church. Again, if he can divide us, he can defeat us. And one of the main ways he will do this is by sowing into a church false doctrine. False doctrine. As you read the New Testament, this is a reoccurring theme throughout the pages of the New Testament that we are commanded to be on guard against. It was an issue that all the writers of the New Testament were concerned with, not the least of which was Paul, um, who himself was very concerned about uh, about unity in the body of Christ uh, and mentioned constantly uh, in his epistles that Christians not break the unity of the Spirit by agreeing with or embracing false doctrine. That's why he was such a stickler on driving home sound doctrine. Uh, all of his epistles are very doctrinal because he understood that, you know, doctrine is the key to everything. If you don't have the right spiritual foundation to build your spiritual life upon, you're not, it's not gonna, it's gonna crumble. And that's why the devil knows that. That's why he interjects into local church or tries to false doctrine. Something that Paul was very much on guard uh, against, told us to be on guard against. And not only did he tell Christians, look, beware of false doctrine. Don't go anywhere near it. Understand the truth so well you'll know false teaching when you see it. He also said, and don't hang out with anybody who's into it. Now, in Romans 16, verse 17, he talks about this, just one of many places. He said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. And avoid them. 
Let me just say this. Today in the church, the motto seems to be unity at any price. As if unity is the most important thing the church should be concerned about. It isn't. Truth is. But I've heard people over the years saying things like, you know, doctrine divides. So let's get away from the teaching of the Bible with all that doctrine. And let's come together as a kind of a global community to work together in dealing with climate change, ending world hunger, disease, and in promoting equity and social justice. That's the new great commission of the church in these last days. Can I say something after spending six weeks talking about unity? Sometimes division is a good thing. Sometimes division is a good thing. As Jesus said about his own ministry, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he goes on to say, I've come to divide. What, what do you mean, Lord? You know, I've come to divide son from father, daughter from mother, daughter-in-law from mother-in-law. That's probably not that hard, but I don't know what your mother-in-law's like, girls. Um, what is he talking about? Truth. Doctrine. I agree that doctrine divides because the word of God is the sword of the spirit and it's the purpose of a sword to cut or to divide. The word of God will divide the true from the false, the fleshly from the spiritual, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, and the genuine from the counterfeit. Satan knows if a church is going to teach the word, it's going to divide people and those that are not of the truth are not going to stay. And those that stay are the ones that typically love the word, love the Lord, are truly born again. No wonder the devil loves it when churches go woke and teach woke ideologies instead of the Bible, like CRT, critical race theory, and equity, and other things. Or, there's a lot of churches that aren't woke, per se, but... They simply stop teaching the Bible. They stop teaching sound doctrine for the most part. They still give it lip service, only to feed their people nothing but, you know, positive, feel-good messages that never offend and are tolerant and inclusive of everyone and pretty much every teaching except for one, the teaching of God's Word. Guys, the, only, the one and only foundation that will ground us and will unify us as believers in Christ is the faith, the faith. The subject of unity is Paul's theme in verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians 4. We've been looking at that. Once again, in Ephesians 4, 3, he talks about the unity of the Spirit. And here in Ephesians 4, 13, he makes reference to the unity of the faith. Now, he did touch on this earlier in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, when he talked about one faith. As we said when we studied that a couple weeks ago, um, there is a set of truths. Understand now. There is a set of truths upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built. A body of truth we call the New Testament. This body of truth is also referred to as the faith. Not having faith, but a body of truth called the faith. The one and only faith that God has committed to his church for safekeeping and the distribution to a dark and fallen, lost and dying world. Jude talks about it in verse 3 of his epistle. How that 
God has committed to us the faith. It's the truth of God. We are to guard it. And we are to share it faithfully. Now, guys, this truth is the foundation upon which, upon which our faith is built. Of course, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But this truth, the faith, is the foundation upon which our faith is built, which is why Satan attacks it so vehemently. Look, the Bible says in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Satan's no fool. You want to bring down a very large building? You don't have to fire at the building. Destroy the foundation, and the building will crumble and fall. Satan knows that. And so the devil has been chipping away at the foundation of God's word in Christian churches for years and has been successful for the most part on his attacks against the word of God, his attacks on spiritual or biblical truth. Uh, I try to keep on top of these surveys by from Gallup and other uh, Barna and the different uh, Christian organizations. I have seen several surveys taken recently among professing Christians, uh, and the results are very disturbing. I'll share a few with you just to communicate what I'm trying to say about how the devil has chipped away at the foundation of the Christian church. Half of professing born-again believers say that sharing their Christian faith is not important to them. The same percentage only reads or studies the Bible once a week, if that. Less than half of professing Christians say that human life is sacred, which means a whole lot of professing Christians are open to abortion because human life isn't sacred. Only 63% of professing born-again Christians, now these are professing born-again Christians. These are not Lutheran, Methodist, uh, Catholic Christians, you know, not denominate, mainline denominational churchgoers. These are those who claim to be born-again evangelical believers. Try to find the numbers on the mainline church professing Christians. It is really abysmal. These are bad enough. Only 63% of professing born-again Christians say God is the basis for all truth. Less than half of professing Christians believe that Jesus was sinless, that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus was virgin-born, or that he lived a sinless life. Now, if you believe Jesus was a sinner, you got some, got some big problems, theologically speaking. Sinners can't die for sinners. It would take the innocent dying for the guilty. This is how badly Satan has destroyed the foundation where people think they can be Christians and believe in a sinful Jesus. Uh, it's amazing. Now, guys, I have to lay a substantial part of the blame for this biblical Ill illiteracy on pastors who call themselves Christians as they are supposed to feed God's sheep on his word. That's our job, feed the sheep on God's word. Uh, surveys taken among the clergy found that a shockingly large percentage of pastors now reject, reject biblical teaching on some of the most basic Christian beliefs. These are incredible. Just 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. 39% of evangelical pastors surveyed said there is no absolute moral truth and that each individual must determine their own truth. 
At least a third of senior pastors in the, in the United States believe one can earn a place in heaven by simply being a good, a good person, according to a nationwide survey. One third or more of senior pastors surveyed also believe the Holy Spirit is not a person, but rather a symbol of God's power. Others say that moral truth is subjective. Sexual relations between two unmarried people who love each other is morally acceptable. And the list goes on and on. I'm, that's all I can handle. Um, the church is in trouble. Not every church. There is always going to be the Church of Philadelphia. Churches that love the word, don't deny the Lord. You know, And they'll stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm talking about the church in general in America, evangelical, denominational. Let me read to you an article based on what happened at a Lutheran church in Minnesota last Sunday. Last Sunday. If you doubt that the church in America, for the most part, has lost its way. Here's this article. You ready? It says, a female Lutheran pastor in Minnesota has gone viral for leading her congregation in a sparkle creed prayer in honor of LGBT Pride Month in which she described God as non-binary and Christ Jesus as having two dads. Anna Helgen, co-pastor of, I think, it's, uh, I think it's Adina, Community Lutheran Church, member of the ECLC in Adina, a suburb of Minneapolis, delivered the prayer during a Sunday service on June 25th, last Sunday, when she called on members of her church to stand. I saw the video. She had everybody stand up and repeat as she recited this, this what is it, this uh, sparkle, I'd never heard of it, sparkle creed. It's a statement of faith known on social media for the woke church. Now remember, she's saying this and they're all repeating I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural, Helgen said. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic. I don't know what that has to do with anything. And had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit. It's a Lutheran church. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints, as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. So gay love is fine. It's normal. So beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God. Help my unbelief. Amen. Well, you got a lot of unbelief to help. Um, I won't have you turn to it because we're running short on time. You know, I couldn't help but hear the words of Paul the Apostle to a young pastor named Timothy prophesying about what was coming in the last days, and I think we qualify. I'll read it to you. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. 
He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, a young pastor, who will judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, exclamation point. Paul was, someone say he was begging Timothy as a young pastor and all pastors to preach the word faithfully. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He's talking about folks in the church. The world has never endured sound doctrine. He's talking about churchgoers. The time will come when there will be so much apostasy in the church that people will no longer want to hear the Bible. You think, I don't know what Timothy thought. He's probably thinking, are you sure, Paul? I can't even believe that's going to be possible. Oh, it'd be possible. We are living in that period right now. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, the devil's, the devil's lies. Listen, guys, every Christian apostate, okay, an apostate is somebody who has left the faith. Every Christian apostate will tell you that evangelical Christians, those that believe in the Bible, they're the haters. We're the haters. Why is that? Because we oppose abortion. We oppose hormone blockers for gender reassignment. And we oppose the transgender movement with its promotion of gender-affirming surgeries for children which is nothing more than mutilation, the mutilation of children. And if you ever do a little research on this, you'll find it's big money for hospitals and doctors. Whatever happened to the Hippocratic Oath? To do no harm. You got little kids? They, they're not old enough to make any decisions, really, about anything. And you're letting them tell some adult, oh, I'm a girl. Born a boy, I'm a girl. Oh, I think I'm a boy if she's a little girl oh let's rush him into surgery that's disgusting that's demonic those who support these things you know the woke churches believe that they're the ones who really love and care about people not us we are you know we're hateful evangelicals uh, but they are those who really love and care about people they are the true christians approved by god that's not what the apostle john and the other other writers of the new testament <clears throat> Uh, felt about that kind of they they disagree i'll just read you these two quickly second john verses six and seven this is love they say well we, you know we are the ones who really love well john says this is love this is true love that we walk according to his commandment not the latest woke nonsense this is the commandment that as you have heard from the from the beginning you should walk in it for many deceivers have gone out into the world and they continue in the world jesus said when the apostles came to him and said lord what are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age matthew 24 the first thing he said to them this is an end times prophecy the first thing he said was beware that no one what deceives you he said the deception would get so intense that if it were possible even the elect would be deceived See, I am telling you beforehand, the word of God protects us against these things. Look, anybody can call themselves a Christian. Jesus said, but by their fruits you will know them. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. 
Now by this we know that we know him. By this we know that we're real Christians. If we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him or her. But whoever keeps his word, truly, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, that we are true Christians. He who says he abides in him and Jesus ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. I mean, did Jesus teach any of this stuff going on today in these woke churches? Did Jesus encourage homosexuality? Did Jesus preach killing children in their mother's womb so that you don't have to spend the money raising them and you can live your most authentic life because kids shackle you, they, they weigh you down? Let me end with a portion from an article that came out just a short while ago, written by a Christian author named David Lightsey. He said, I quote, As of July 1st, 2021, there were an estimated 249 million adults aged 20 or older living in, living in the U.S. Of this population group, 63% are self-identified as Christians. So roughly 156 million Americans proclaim to be Christians. But if that, this is true, then why is everything so upside down culturally? Fairly simple answer, fake Christianity. Fake Christianity and the lack of recognition of an objective, authoritative source of truth versus a subjective version. Truth is whatever I think it is or I feel it is. That's what's driving the culture today. Illustrating that much of this quote-unquote Christian base is really nothing more than counterfeits. A lot of counterfeit Christians out there. He said they're easily influenced by the culture and considerably different than the authentic version. We're the authentic version. We believe God's word. We love the Lord. We, are, we, we would go to the death to stand for the word of God. But we're in the minority now. We're, we're the Church of Philadelphia the little church among the all of Christendom today. Then he goes on to quote a well-known pastor who said, and I quote, Authentic Christianity uh, understands that the scripture, the Bible, is objective. It is absolute divine truth. The Bible calls it the faith. No person has ever had in himself any idea or any experience or any thought or any intuition that determines the truth. The truth is already determined by God and revealed in Scripture. No human individually, no humans, no humans collectively are sources for establishing the truth. Neither is any angelic being a source for establishing the truth. That's why Paul says, if anyone, anyone, even an angel from heaven teaches any, you anything other than uh, the truth I have taught you, let him be accursed. The liberal culture, what we would define now as the woke church, has manufactured their own false reality based upon what they perceive to be true, which could not be more warped and antithetical to what is true. However, truth is not subjective, nor is it personal. It's clearly objective and always defined by Scripture. So due in part to a growing number of compromising quote-unquote Christians, and pastors, truth has become this fluctuating set of culturally driven standards which are never supposed to be offensive. Scripture is God's truth, whether it affects anybody or nobody. It is God's truth whether you agree with it or disagree with it, like it or don't like it. 
The truth is offensive, and there will, there will always be a fixed animosity between the culture and authentic Christianity. If the world loves you, Jesus said, you're not of God, because the world always loves those that belong to it. But since you belong to me, the world is going to hate you and persecute you and try to get rid of you. The truth is offensive. And there will always be a fixed animosity between the culture and authentic Christianity. The divide or chasm between the two could not be any wider than it currently is, unquote. Guys, in these last days, just before Jesus returns for his church, it's going to be the faith. The faith through the power of the Holy Spirit that is going to bind God's people together in unity. That's what we're talking about, right? The unity of the faith, very important. Again, the faith is found in God's word in particular as Christians in the New Testament. Guys, read the word. Study the word. The time has come like never before. I mean, for us to know what God has said. The time has never been more critical and the warfare more intense. There is so much spiritual deception out there. If you don't know the truth of, Je uh, truth of the Bible very well, you might be taking it. You might be taking it. Again, Jesus said right before his return, spiritual deception would be ramped up. And remember this, the Bible doesn't say God counts sincerity for righteousness. He says he counts faith in his truth for righteousness. Proverbs 14, 12, I'll end with these three verses. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a path before each person that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. So a lot of people have embraced teachings that they believe with all their heart is right. Those teachings will lead them to eternal death if they don't receive Jesus as their Savior. God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah during a time of Israel's history where the nation was very backslidden, into idolatry and false teaching god pleaded with them the lord said stop jeremiah 6 16 stop at the crossroads and look around here's the thing god is so gracious he's always throwing things in our path if we're going the wrong way to force us to stop and consider where we're going it might be uh, an illness it might be uh, a wayward child it might be death in the family it might be something, but the Lord is always trying to stop us in our tracks, to cause us to look around. Are you sure you want to go this way? Is this, do you really think this is my will for your life? Because he wants people to stop, turn around, and start going the right way. He did this with Israel. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way. Get back to the word. And walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. But they replied, no, that's not the road we want. We have to be careful. I believe that people are deceived so many times because they just don't want the truth. They love darkness rather than light. But I'll leave you with Isaiah 8.20, where God said, all these spiritual leaders you're going to, if they don't teach according to my word, it's because there is no light in them. Only the word of God can bring life and light and wholeness, really. So we will end it there. 
and come back next time. We will start a new topic out of Philippians to look at. So keep that in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We praise you, Lord, for giving us your truth, opening our eyes to your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you're not a distant deity. You made everything, and then you stepped from eternity into time and became one of us to live among us, to love us, to teach us, and ultimately to die for us and then rise from the dead that you might raise us up someday into heaven for all eternity. We praise you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.